0: Amen. Well, I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me uh, once again to the book of Nehemiah. As we continue our series of messages, our series of messages from the book of Nehemiah, which I've entitled Building a Kingdom. Excuse me, building a community of faith, building a community of faith. And this morning we're in Nehemiah chapter five. I'm going to be talking about building walls of unity, building walls of unity. Now, uh, let me just say, you know, many of you know, like, you know, I, I pray and I look, you know, to where God wants us to land in his word um, for a season as we go through various books of the Bible and various, um, various series of, of, of messages. And so, so we kind of prepared. I began preparing this series of messages for us maybe towards the end of the summer and um, not knowing exactly what's going to happen at any particular point. But this week, as I came to this, this passage of scripture, my heart just became really heavy for, for us as a church, for the church of Jesus Christ here in America and for our nation as a whole. And I believe that, that God really wants to speak to us today. He really wants to speak to us today. And he wants us to open up our hearts and open up our ears to what he wants us to hear, and I've been, I've, been, um, I've been kind of reviewing my role as pastor through times like, like these, and you know, um, my role is not to tell you, should you be a Republican or a Democrat, or how you should vote, but my role as pastor is to help you live as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, and that we would apply the principles of God's word to our own lives And um, and so I, I, I do pray that we would open up our hearts to what God wants to say to us today. And, you know, I've preached messages on unity before and I've seen the churches that have said, yes, amen. But they haven't lived it out. But they haven't lived it out because it's easy for us today to say yes and amen. But it's another thing for us to begin to live out God's word for us as his people. And so, again, would you open up your hearts to what God wants to say to us? Come on, let's pray. And so, Father, we do. We come to you today. We come humbly before you. Lord, we come to you today as your people in the midst of pandemics, the midst of racial strife, the midst of of the divisions we find in our nation Lord, we come to you humbly today and ask you to help us as your people, to speak to us, to help us to live as you would have us to live, to empower us by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we do pray for our nation today. We pray, God, that you would speak peace over our land. Lord, we pray for our president-elect, Joe Biden. We're praying for him and his cabinet, God, that you would you, you would just do in their lives what needs to be done for the good of your people and especially for the sake of the gospel. And Lord, that you would be be very real and very present among your people. And we thank you, God. Um, just, just use this time to speak to us today. And we thank you. We thank you. We love you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And so we've seen that the focal point of the book of Nehemiah is the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And we said that the building of these walls can represent for us the building of a community of faith that will bring blessing to its people, blessing to the world, and ultimately glory to God. And last week we saw how it it was that as we build, there will be enemies, an enemy, who will try to stop the work. And thus, we must be diligent, working with all our hearts. We must be on our guard. We must remain confident in the presence and the power of God to help us as his people. But as we look at chapter 5, we find there was another kind of threat to the work of rebuilding. And this time, it was not an enemy that would attack from the outside, but an enemy that would attack from within. Look with me in Nehemiah chapter 5, reading verses 1 through 13. Now, the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying we had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back. We have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. And now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and all the interest you're charging them. One percent of the money, grain, new wine, and, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my rope and said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. May God bless his word to us today. And so as we've seen, the people have come back to Judah out of exile in Babylon many, many years prior. The temple has been rebuilt. Worship has been reestablished in Jerusalem. And in spite of the enemies that tried to discourage them and hinder their work of building, the people continue to work hard rebuilding the walls of their city. And yet something was terribly wrong in Judah. Something had spread throughout the land that was far more dangerous and threatening than the enemies that surrounded them. For a weed had planted itself among them and was threatening to choke the life out of them. A fog had filtered its way into their hearts and was about to tear apart that which God had been bringing together. A plague had made its way through the streets of the city and out into the surrounding countryside, leaving no man, woman, or child untouched. What was it that was happening? We could call it the weed of selfishness. We could call it the fog of a non-caring spirit. We could call it the plague of hardness of heart. But whatever we call it, it was spreading throughout the land and threatening to tear apart that which was being built, threatening to pull apart the unity and the brotherhood of the people of God and thus hinder the advance of the kingdom of God. Oh, isn't the enemy of God's people so smart and so cunning? For when he sees how firm we stand against the attacks that come from around us, when he realizes that we will not give into discouragement and fear, when he begins to understand that we will stand firm in our faith and continue the work of building, he seeks a new strategy. We've seen it over and over again throughout the years. And often that strategy is to tear us apart from within to sow seeds of disunity. And so he shoots his poison darts into our hearts, a poison that manifests itself in selfishness, greed, the demanding of one's right and all rights and all else that will tear apart the relationships meant to exist among God's people. His poison gets into the joints of the walls in such a way as to weaken them and eventually topple them. And unfortunately, the people of Nehemiah's day had failed to realize what was happening, the way in which their walls and their city was being weakened. And so we read of how it was the poor among them were being forced into mortgaging their homes and properties to borrow money at high interest rates and to even sell off their children into slavery. And this was all at the hands of their fellow Jews. These who had come back to Judah with great hopes and dreams were being forced into abject poverty from which they would probably never recover. And again, it was all at the hands of their brothers. Nehemiah, when he hears the outcry of the people, he cannot just sit silently by. For Nehemiah knows that what, what what is taking place, it's not right. It's a threat to the existence of God's people. And ultimately, it will bring reproach upon God himself. And so. He confronts the wrong, gives instructions to correct it. He calls the people to do what they need to do to preserve the unity of God's people. For Nehemiah knew that they must build walls of unity if they were to build a city that will bring blessing to all and glory to God. Listen, Jesus said, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. You see, Jesus knew the importance of unity. Oh, you remember Jesus' final prayer for his church, his prayer for us even today, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, it was a prayer for unity. The apostle Paul instructs the church to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. But when it comes to this work of building a spiritual community of faith, you see, we are called to build walls of unity. For we need to realize that no matter how great a worship service we may have, no matter how how nice a building we might build, no matter how wonderful our programs might be, if we are not united as the people of God in our purpose and in our vision and most of all in our love for Jesus Christ and our love for one another, that we will end up with a very, very weak wall, thus a very weak city, a very weak community of faith. And so how will such a wall be built? Well, let's learn some lessons from Nehemiah chapter five. The first thing we see is that unity is built upon focus and purpose. Unity is built upon focus and purpose. It seems to me that as long as the people were focused on the task that was before them, that is the rebuilding of the wall, they were united But once they began to focus on themselves, their own well-being, on how they could get more for themselves, disunity had opportunity. While doing the work of building, they were one in heart, in mind, in purpose. When they allowed themselves to become distracted from the work, well, that's when discord came. You know, unity always requires a shared purpose, a shared focus, does it not? Oh, I think of those first disciples coming from so many different backgrounds, fishermen, a zealot, tax collectors and so forth. They were anything but a homogenous group of men. But as they gave themselves to following Jesus and became focused on their love for him and the call that he had placed upon their lives, they became a united group of men who eventually would turn their world upside down. Oh, the same was true for the early church. Men and women, Jew and Gentile, slaves and freemen, people from every social class became one in heart and mind as they kept their focus on Jesus, their Savior, and rallied around his call upon their lives. Listen, we need to understand that a community of faith like ours is going to be made up of people from all different walks of life. And thankfully, we are... are are very diverse for the kingdom of god is made up of a great diversity of people but we can become we can become either divided by our differences or we can live as a united people as we focus on our love for christ and the call he's placed upon our lives you know i read a headline this past week from from christianity today the headline was this at purple churches Pastors struggle with polarized congregations. You know what a purple church is, right, where you've got blue people and red people all together in one congregation, Republicans and Democrats. But it said at purple churches. Now, the article said this, that there are a lot of churches across the nation. If you're not a Republican, you're not welcome. If you're not a Democrat, you're not welcome. And you kind of think, well, that's kind of easy. Okay, I'm a Democrat, I go to that church. I'm a Republican, I go to that church, right? But what happens in a purple church? But here's the thing. Because of the environment we're in today, and because the church, Christians in the church, have taken on the attitudes of the world, pastors struggle to keep their congregations united. See, the call today is for us to, first of all, stay focused on Christ, our love for him, and the purposes for which he has called us. Walls of unity are built upon focus and purpose, and our focus is not on this world, it's not on the politics of our. That's not our we may be involved here and there, but our focus is not on those things. Our focus is on Jesus and our purpose is fulfilling his call to love one another and to bring the gospel to the world. Unity is built upon focus and purpose. But secondly, we can learn that unity flows out of empathy and compassion. It flows out of empathy and compassion that is understanding what other people are feeling, what other people are experiencing, and the whys of other people's lives. Andy Stanley recently said in a a great message, he said, listen, if you're saying, saying, well, I don't understand why those people or how those people could vote that way or how those people, you're admitting something you don't understand because you haven't talked to them. You haven't gotten involved in their world. You haven't, haven't developed empathy for their place in life. You see, the rich people of Judah exhibited a gross lack of empathy and compassion. For instead of stepping up to the plate to help meet the needs of their less fortunate brothers, they sought ways to prosper themselves. They took advantage of the situation for their own gain. They were probably saying things like, well, you know what? If they had just been better stewards of their money, of their land, of their vineyards, they wouldn't have been in that place. That's a lack of empathy. And so they made the poor mortgage their farms to them. They lent money to them at high interest rates, rates that would probably keep the people in debt to them for years to come. And when they couldn't pay, they began to take their children as slaves, even selling them off to Gentiles. You see, the rich of Judah had become loan sharks, taking advantage of the situation of the poor, pulling them further and further into a place of, des- of dependency, despondency and poverty, sending them into great depth. For they, for, for they had no empathy for their fellow Jews. They had no compassion for them. No wonder Nehemiah was so angry. Oh, how different these people were from the believers that we read about in the early church in Jerusalem. We read in Acts 2 verses 44 and 45 that all the believers were together, had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Or in chapter four, we read these words that all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possession was his own, but they shared everything they had. And and it says this, there were no needy persons among them. Now, isn't that amazing? Come on, church, isn't that amazing? There were no needy people among them. Why? Because... They took what they had. They had empathy for each other, compassion. They shared with each other. You see, the early church took seriously the call of God to love one's neighbor as oneself, to feel for those in need, to demonstrate compassion towards those who who are in need, and thus to maintain the unity of the body of Christ. And I'm just reminded today that if we are to build a community of faith that really knows what it means to live in unity, we must ask, Lord, to help us feel what others are feeling, that's empathy, to understand the other's perspective, to allow our hearts to be filled with compassion towards one another, always willing to reach out to meet the needs of those around us, never taking advantage of those in need, for unity flows out of hearts of empathy and compassion. And thirdly, we look. We learned this morning that unity refuses to exercise one's rights. Unity refuses to exercise one's rights. That's a tough one for us, is it not? You see, the wealthy of of Judah, they had the right to do what they did. That is, not everything they did was illegal. They had the right to think that if they should lend money to someone in need, that they should receive that money back or else take over that person's property and possessions. It was their right, but you see, but, but by exercising their rights, well, exercising their rights, it was not right. But does that make sense? Exercising their rights was not right. For the exercising of their rights was destroying the unity of God's people by making a few rich at the expense of their brothers who were in need. We find just the opposite happen in Nehemiah's own life if, if, if you go on to read there. Nehemiah chapter 5, and and, and I, I don't have time to read the whole rest of the chapter, but verse 15 says this, but the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them. In addition to food and wine, their assistance also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled for the work. We did not acquire any land. And At the end of verse 18, we read these words. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Listen, Nehemiah had the right as the governor of Judah, the leader of his people, to expect that they would provide for his needs. He had the right under Persian law to tax the people whatever he felt was necessary to maintain his own lifestyle. He had the right to own land and be fed at the expense of the people to receive the governor's allotment and so forth. But he did not. He did not demand his rights because Nehemiah knew that the building of a community of faith meant building walls of unity. Nehemiah did not exercise his rights. Listen, today, you know, as well as I do, there's a lot of talk about rights. Everyone wants to assert their rights, even at the expense of what is good for others or even at the expense of society and our nation as a whole. And even in the church, we talk about our rights. That we have a right to expect things a certain way, that we have a right that things should go in the direction that I think they should go, that I have a a right for this or that. But maybe we need to remember that when Jesus Christ came to this earth, he laid down his rights. He laid down his rights all for the sake of of, of what would be best for us. And Jesus said to his disciples, listen, these are hard words. He said, listen, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, we'll go two miles with them. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. In other words, Jesus saying, listen, if you want to follow me, you need to give up your rights ultimately, if we are to build walls of unity and a true community of faith, we will have to learn, church, to put aside our rights for the sake of what is best for others. The building of a community of faith is not about our rights, what we want, what we think we deserve, the way we think it should go. Oh, because we've been in the church for so many years, or because I'm the new person on the block. This is what should happen. No, it's about doing what is right before God and what is right for others. And to build walls of unity means going beyond expressing one's rights and instead doing that which expresses love, love for Christ, love for one another. Doing that which best leads to unity. And finally, this morning, we learn this, that unity seeks out ways to serve others. And Nehemiah sets a great example of what servanthood or even servant leadership is all about. For notice that Nehemiah's concern was not first of all for himself, but for his people. He realized, as, as, as we saw there, that the demands of the building of the walls while, while, while people needing to feed their families and also meeting the tax demands of the empire was a heavy load on these people. And he knew that God in play, had placed them there not to place a, a greater load on them, but to, but to in fact help relieve that load. And thus, Nehemiah sought to do what he could to lighten the burden by doing what he could for the people whom he served. You see, people who build walls of unity are people who have learned what it means to live as servants, always serving the needs of others. Well, the Apostle Paul wrote these words, many of you know them well, from Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves for each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. For Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to speak of how Jesus came, gave up the throne of heaven, came to this earth and even laid down his life for us. Oh, what a great definition of servanthood, one who considers others better than themselves. I wonder how many times we do that in a day. I don't think that often, huh? Or one who seeks to to meet the interests or needs of others before their own. You see, this is what we in the church are called to strive for and to seek to achieve. We're called to serve. We're called to be servants. We're called to put others before ourselves. That's how we build walls of unity. We all know that we live in an extremely divided world and nation. We see anything but unity around us. Our nation is divided. We've seen it so much this week, we continue to see it. But our nation is divided by politics, by race, by economics, by philosophies and so forth and Throughout this political season, again, even this week, that disunity has been highlighted to the max. You know, we have taken on, right, we've taken on our political leanings as our identity. I heard a commentary being spoken as as to how things are different today than they were even a few years ago politically and and the divisions that we have in our nation. And, And the commentator was saying this, that, that people today, they're not just a Republican or a Democrat or whatever, but they've taken it on as their identity. And that's what, that's what determines how they live and the way they think and the way they move and so forth. And it's created great schisms, and that's the world. But let me tell you what, I think we have Christians who have taken on their political leanings as their identities instead of, first of all, being identified as a follower of Jesus Christ. It's no wonder we have the kind of divisions we have in purple churches or in the church world as a whole. Listen, church, we ought never forget that from the beginning, the strategy of the enemy has been to divide us. Go back to the garden. You see the division he sowed. And he, 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 he's worked through the centuries to divide us, male versus female, black versus white, rich versus poor republican versus democrat and so forth and he is yet working he's yet working to divide us as a nation as families because how many of us know it's all crept into our families it's crept into our homes he's yet working to divide us as churches and in fact it seems that today he is working overtime why because because a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand And here's what I find so sad, church, that so many Christians today we have fed into and continue to feed into the disunity that the enemy seeks to sow among us through our rhetoric, through our social posts, by the way we speak about the other side. Christians here in America are being used to divide us as a nation. They're being used to divide our families. They're being used to divide our churches. For the weed of selfishness, the fog of a non-caring spirit, the plague of hardness of heart have made their way in among God's people. The enemy has shot his poison arrows of greed and rights and selfishness. And my way of thinking is the right way of thinking. And, and it's, it's, it's our job to get everyone to come to our side and to think our way. We have failed to be aware of the damage that the enemy is doing. And we seem to have forgotten. And these words have just been like, man, they've been in my heart and mind all week. Jesus' words. Come on, church, we've got to take hold of them. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are, not those who feed into rhetoric and division, but blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. James said in James 3, but the wisdom that comes from heaven, you want to be wise? Here's what wisdom looks like. If it comes from heaven, it's first of all pure, then peace loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Do we want a harvest of righteousness, church? Well, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is. When brothers, when God's people live together in unity and he ends the psalm saying, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life evermore. You know what? I have to think that we here in America, we are losing God's blessing because of the disunity and the strife. But not only there, the church, the church is losing God's blessing. Because we've allowed disunity and strife, division to come among us, church, that ought not be. We want the blessing of God, don't we? Come on, do we want the blessing of God? How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity, when black and white and rich and poor and, and educated and non-educated and Republicans and Democrats, all in a purple church, can live together in unity. Again Jesus prayed. His prayer was that they may be brought to complete unity. For He says, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. In other words, church, the world is looking. They're watching. They're listening to our words. They're reading our posts. They're looking to see if this Jesus thing and all this talk about love and unity and the power of the gospel is for real. And I'm afraid to say that a lot of us have become distracted from our focus and our real purpose. We spend more time talking about our candidate and our political views and our social anger than we do talking about Jesus and the grace of God and the salvation that he offers to us. We've allowed ourselves to become distracted and thus divided even in the church because we focused on the wrong things. And we have a choice today. Listen, as we move through this next week and through these months and listen, listen, I know a lot of people thought the day after the after the the election, the pandemic was going away. It's probably not going away all that quick. We've all got our our opinions on what needs to be done or shouldn't be done. And we've got our opinions on the social matters of our day and the policies and politics. But listen, we as God's people, we have a choice today. We can either add to the divisions of our world or we can sow seeds of unity. We can allow the poison of the enemies darts to take over our hearts and minds or we can stay focused on Jesus Christ our Savior and the purposes for which he's called us that is to preach the gospel and to serve the needs of humanity I'm not saying that we can't have a political opinion I'm not saying that there aren't Christians who are called to work in politics but what I am saying is that we as God's people we are called not first of all to uphold a politician a president or any other person We are here, first of all, to uphold the name of Jesus Christ. We are not here to push forward a political agenda. We are here first of all to preach the gospel to all the world that men and women might know that Jesus Christ is able to save them and redeem them and give them the hope of eternity. Oh church we have a choice. Are we going to add to the divisions and continue to sow seeds of of unity or disunity? I'm pleading with you church to get off of, of, of Facebook or if you're there to stop posting things that only add to the rhetoric cuz we're doing it just stop it i'm i'm pleading with you as pastor just stop it let's let's sow seeds of love let's sow the seeds of the gospel Let's live our lives as, as, first of all, the people of God, as followers of Jesus, and do our parts to build walls of unity here in this place. For then and only then will will, will we build a community of faith that will bring blessing to the world around us, blessing to our nation, blessing to each other, and bring honor, honor to God. I don't know that I've talked that hard to you in a while. I'm sorry if somebody's offended, but I just felt that like God just stirring my heart for us as his people. We can't keep on playing into what's happening in our world. God wants, God wants to use us in a different way. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? And as, as, as we just begin to pray, let me just read these words for you from Acts 4. As all the believers were one in heart and mind no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own but they shared everything they had and with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the lord Jesus and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all Lord jesus Lord Jesus we need you Spirit of God, we need you. In this hour, Lord, our nation needs you. We ask you to forgive us for the way we have sown into the disunity that has just overtaken our nation. Not just the difference of opinion, but the The hatred and the venom that's being spewed. The demonizing of of those who are on the other side. Just the thoughts that those people, those people are gonna ruin our lives and ruin our nation. God, you're you're so much greater, you're so much higher than all of this. And you've called us as your people to live in a different way, to think in a different way, and to to instead of continuing to sow the seeds of disunity and strife, to sow a different kind of seed. Jesus, we hear your words. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Help us to understand what that means in our day, in our age. Forgive us for the stuff that we've posted on Facebook or on Instagram or however it is. Forgive us for, for the anger in our hearts towards those who think differently than us. Forgive us, God. Oh, we know the world is going to act like the world. for we know that Satan is still the prince of this world. But God, we are your people We want to live and think and speak and act the way you would have us to, that we might represent you well, that all the world would know that you are God, that Jesus is Lord, and salvation comes through him and through him alone. Help us, Lord. Help us to be a people here at First Assembly who will build walls of unity. Help the church across America, to learn what it means to build walls of unity. We need you, Jesus. We need you, God, in this day and in this hour. It's in your name we pray. Amen.